0: On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Good Coast Community is another solo cast, and this time we're going to t- be talking about something that has come up several times recently, and certainly I've dealt with it a number of times over the years, but ju- it's just been over the last number of months, it seems to have come up a number of times for some of our clients, and also even in questions in some of my entrepreneurial forums where people have been asking about it, and it's this question about sort of when to provide and how much information to provide potential deal partners at what point, right? Because you know it's sort of a tricky thing. Especially we've had a couple of situations I can think of at least two, maybe three, where the potential deal partner was a acquirer or joint venture who was a competitor. So that there were great reasons to do a deal with them, but if the deal didn't go through, there was cert- you know certainly risks involved in disclosing certain information that might give this party a competitive advantage, right? And so there's always a balance. And obviously, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, you need an NDA, right, a non-disclosure agreement. And certainly, we want to get an NDA in place before you give any particular information. But that's not the only answer, because first of all, you've got to be able to prove that somebody violated an NDA. Then you've got to spend money to go enforce it. And then there are certain things, just sort of the general knowledge of the way you do things and things like that, that they might be able to take advantage of where they're not specifically using your intellectual property, or, or you know, at least it's maybe it's hard to prove, you know, or your uh, confidential information, that would be useful. Like, you know, so for example, they may not publish your pricing list that you gave them, but uh, their knowledge of your pricing, you know, in an industry where let's say that pricing is not public, right, it's a B2B or something like that could be very valuable to them. So how do you make these these decisions? And I'll you know, give a couple of examples you know, specifically, we had one example where somebody raised on one of the forums that they were looking to sell, they got an offer to buy a aspect of their business that they really weren't active or focused on, but it had a good client list. And they had moved on to focus in other areas. And the competitor of theirs wanted to come in and buy this. And on the one hand, it could be valuable to them because they were in that particular space and moving forward and putting money and time and effort into it. And the client list And prospect list from that business, from the one company could be valuable to the other one. And at the same time, this was an asset, that client list that, you know, the company A was not really using because they weren't pursuing that business anymore, whereas company B was. So it would be valuable in company B. So they asked for some due diligence, they, they signed an NDA, they asked for some due diligence on it. The company A provided some high level numbers on the business, right? Numbers of, of people on the list, the, 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 and they had some ongoing business, even though they weren't pursuing it to grow it. It wasn't totally defunct. They, you know, they had some ongoing business in the particular area. So they gave them some high-level numbers, revenue numbers, average, you know, client revenue and things like that, total revenue. But then the potential buyer came back with a much more detailed financial due diligence request. They wanted to see things like related expenses. They wanted to see more detail on the particular clients and you know, and more information on who they were and things like that. And the Owner of company A was, I think, rightly very concerned or hesitant to provide that additional information to the competitor. Sometimes it's a question of timing. Sometimes it's a question of if you should do it at all. And the question is why they need that additional information. And it seemed to me that they likely didn't need a lot of that information. They weren't picking up any of the expense burden of this. They, they knew the business meaning that they were doing a, the same kind of business. So they knew what kind of margins they could run it at. Essentially, they were buying a client list, a prospect list, and some re- ongoing revenue stream. That ongoing revenue stream would be fit into their existing infrastructure, meaning company B, the buyer. And so therefore the expense structure around it, you know, largely of the seller, shouldn't be that, that relevant. Now, you can make the argument that the expense structure could tell them some red flags, like for example, if if it was a lot more expensive to run the business on company A's side, on the seller's side, that might give some insight that maybe uh, the clients are more complex or more problematic or more demanding. So there's some arguments. I'm not saying it's cut and dry, but the extent of what was asked for seemed to be way, 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 way beyond what was necessary to buy a specific asset, not a full company. So the question was, do you provide it? And The company A owner said that they didn't think company B had any ulterior motive, but I told them to be careful about that because you sort of assume and hope maybe they don't, but they very well could, right? They could be looking for a competitive advantage. They could be trying to find out more information on the other aspects of the company. So that's something always to watch out for. But turned out that they really got the feel. We had some back and forth over this. This was not a client. This was somebody that I was just giving some friend-to-friend, you know, entrepreneur's group info on. And the feeling was that they just had sort of overly aggressive folks, right, investors who was who were just asking for this information, sort of like they had to do those due diligence checklist, and they wanted to see everything. And that happens sometimes. Sometimes you have, you know, whether it's the CFO, whether it's the outside accounting firm, whether it's the private equity firm, you know, a venture capital firm that's, you know, owns you or is is invested in you. And they have a way of doing things and they have, you know, they don't tailor the due diligence or they, or they're overly belted spenders careful. And there's not an alternative motive, but even then there's a real question as to, you know, whether you should provide this stuff at all. And, you know, what is it and to be able to have those conversations to say, Hey, why do you need this, this additional information? What is it that you really need to evaluate This uh, to be able to make an offer. And then comes in the the time, even if you can provide some stuff, when do you provide it, right? We had another situation with a client who was looking to do a deal with somebody that that they knew in the industry for a while. They, uh, you know, I won't mention the industry, whatever, it's in the entertainment space, but this company B, you'll call it the buyer, had created a technology platform that would help coordinate, delivers, even sell the the service that our client uh, provided. And there was some good synergies there. And they had a discussion about an acquisition with an ongoing relationship, meaning that the principals of company A, the seller, would join as employees and get some equity in company B going forward. And company B was asking for a huge amount of due diligence up front. And there was a certain amount of financial and legal due diligence provided but then they essentially put in a full due diligence request, like you would see, you know, on any deal. I'm not saying anything on the list. Not, there was really nothing on the list was, that was not legitimate. But they were asking for the full due diligence dump prior to even making an offer or, you know, delivering an LOI. And my advice to the client in this case was not, you know, we provided some level of information, the the uh, information that they needed that the buyer would reasonably need to be able to make an underwriting, you know, or, or valuation determination and also enough to have them determine whether they even want to do the deal in the first place to be able to make an offer. Now, you can always make an offer subject to due diligence, right? Any of the other stuff, and that's often happens, any other stuff that you haven't gotten yet as part of the full due diligence, that's more appropriate to do later. The offer you make, even the L, if you get to an LOI stage and it's signed, the LOI is not binding, with the exception of like, and this is almost always the case, it's not binding with the exception of a few things like confidentiality or the no shop provision, meaning you know you have a period of time where there's exclusivity. But in terms of the deal, that's not a binding thing. So we had to pass through working with us, the client and the accountant to say, hey, what are we going to give them now? Meaning upfront, even before term sheet LOI or even offer to help them evaluate that. What are we going to tell them that We don't have a problem giving it, but it's not you're not going to get it now. We need to see if we have an offer and are anywhere reasonably in the ballpark of potentially getting a deal done. In which case, you know, we'll let's go to LOI, and then once we get the LOI, you know, banged out, and if we get to a deal, then we'll provide this additional due diligence to you. And of course, prior to signing definitive agreements, you'll be able to do you do the full due diligence to make sure everything checks out. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to slash assessment. That's slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So, you know, this sort of decision on when you give what is is really a bit of an art, right? And a bit of a negotiation. And you should definitely have your attorneys and accountants uh, involved. And, you know, it's not standard for for every company, right? Because different industries, different information could be more competitively important than other information. So, I mean, obviously, you're not going to give client names and contact information, things like that, customer names, you know, until, you know, you, you have a definitive agreement and you're ready fully to go. But even information you provide that's not identifiable to clients and customers, but gives the, you know, the information on pricing, any information on revenues, on, you know, on collections, on, you know, I mean, the high level on the model, usually you give that early. But maybe there are some things within that in terms of the way you charge or upcharge or, you know, bill or, or you know, price things that, that, you know, that are not obvious to the public and are and proprietary, you know, in a way or how you determine, uh, you know, pricing. So you want to be really careful about that. And at the same time, I would say that there are times when people are overly, you know, careful. You can, I mean, you can go the other way and have it be problematic because, if you don't give a potential deal partner, most of the time, maybe we're talking about buyers here, but you could be talking the same thing on a joint venture, strategic alliance, whatever. If you don't give them enough in, initial information to have them determine whether the deal's worth their while, whether they, you know, are even interested, whether they it can fit in and align with their existing uh, business and structure or system, or or if they do, you know, uh, what you do, how it aligns with 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 how they run that business then they're not going to get to the point where they can even evaluate it enough to, to make you an offer. So you've got to be able to, you can't, you know, uh, hold it totally close to the vest, um, but you want to determine what you, you know, what you're going to do when. I will tell you that are there horror stories out there where people have given information and the competitors end up using it or, you know, otherwise it's been detrimental? Sure. Do I think that happens extremely frequently? I actually don't. I don't see that very often in the deals that we do in the space that we do know listen in part it's because I help clients make that evaluation of what they're going to reveal when. And they tend to take our advice on that and and you know we balance it well. But also I think it's because frankly most potential deal partners out there, especially if you vetted them, you know, and if you know anything about them, which you should do for many reasons up front, are not out there trying to do this just to get better information. But some do, even though the majority don't. So you want to you know you want to be careful there the the other thing that's interesting is I think people underestimate how much work it takes to put together due diligence when you end up getting to a deal point and you do have to start disclosing a lot of this information, let's say it's it's going to be in schedules to the asset purchase agreement or whatever the agreement is, usually you're going to have to list every single one of your material contracts right and get copies of them. You know, you're going to give detailed financial information. You're going to talk about any regulatory licenses, things like that. You have any any issues you have on the regulatory side or on the litigation side, or and on and on, right? Client lists, detailed breakdowns on average customer spending or value, or in the financial services wealth management space, you know, assets of the management types of accounts they have. So there's a whole body of work to do there after the fact. I mean, it takes a lot of time and energy and effort and, and legal and accounting fees to put that stuff together. So that's another reason why you don't want to do that stuff too early, because if the, if you don't even have an offer or an LOI, or know that you have a business deal to spend that kind of time and energy internally and to spend that kind of money with your professionals really doesn't make sense either. So that's another reason why you want to balance it out. I mean, at some point you have to bite the bullet and the vote internal and external time resources, you know, money, et cetera, to get that done because it's a crucial part of a deal and you want to get the deal done without it. But you don't want to do that ideally until you've got a deal locked in, or at least there's a very high likelihood that it looks like it's going to go forward. So, I mean, it's just, it's just interesting, these decisions and all, and there's been just several situations where this whole timing conversation has come up I think the three situations I'm thinking of, we were either as a client or informally as a fellow entrepreneur or friend, advising the sell side folks. On the buy side, meaning getting due diligence on the buyers, there's a similar conversation of when you should get that and what you should ask for. But often that will come a little later because you're not the one usually evaluating, making the offer, right? It's usually a buyer that is the one that's that needs the information to be able to make the offer. Now, if they're offering you equity in the company, then yeah, I mean, I think you should definitely get information on that when you're evaluating the offer they've made. And before you go much further to see, especially, hey, listen, if it's just sort of a little equity kicker and it's gravy, maybe that's different. But it's, if it's significant equity, I talked about this a little bit in the past. And that's a, a, an important part of the purchase price. And to evaluate what that equity is really worth and where you stand in the, in the cap table and what your rights and preferences are is an important part of the deal that you should do relatively early. Some of the other legal due diligence, you know, on that they're all in compliance with things, they don't have litigation, that kind of stuff. I mean, that'll come in the reps and warranties and schedules, and you, you know, we'll get that due diligence a little later. But before you sign an LOI, on a deal that has any material equity in it, you know, I think you should do some due diligence on the, on that equity and make sure that you're getting the kind of value and that you um, have the kind of rights and that you're in the, in the cap table where you think you are and you understand what the rights and preferences are of the people above you. If, if, if there are people in the cap table or classes of equity in the cap table above you so that you want to do pre signing definitive agreements, certainly on that side. But, you know, a lot of the other stuff, you know, might be able to wait a little, a little later. So, you know, listen, this is just one of the many ways, and it's, it keeps it fascinating for me, right? Whether it's negotiating the deal terms itself or figuring out the timing of due diligence or the many other aspects of deals. This is what keeps it interesting to me because it's always a little bit of a science, a little bit of an art, a little bit of a dance, a little bit of a negotiation. And obviously, the more you do these deals, the more you figure out how to do them and how to balance those factors. So those are my thoughts for the week, just on the little things that came up around timing and weather and especially with competitors and how you handle it. And I would love to get your input when this airs. Hopefully you've had good experiences with it. I know there's an occasional horror story out there hopefully that's not one of yours. In any case, folks, have a great week. See you next week on the Quest Podcast. Take care. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash deal. that's coreycupfer.com slash deal. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.